Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you mean to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and we are returning once again to the Oristea. With me today are Andrea Lipinski and Brian Phillips. How are you all today? Doing well. Good. Good to be back. All right. Well, uh, we are on our last of the three plays in this trilogy, uh, The Humanities. And as we learned last time, uh, Humanities and Furies, and I think there was one other word, are all kind of translated the same way, uh, but it's the same the same people. Um, yeah, I looked it into it. It's Uranies. Your oh yeah, Renuies is yeah. Greek. Okay, and Furies is Latin. Okay, so that that kind of gives you a little bit of a tip off about uh, some central characters in this in this week's play. Last time, the second play takes place a couple of years after after the first play, but in this case, the action picks up almost right where it left off. So I'm going to give us a short little summary, and then we'll jump right in to libation or to, uh, to the humanities. As we left on libation bearers, uh, Orestes had been uh, had taken care of uh, his mother and and quote unquote stepfather, but then fled and then fled to 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 um, to Apollo's care uh, bef- uh, before being chased down by the Furies. So the Furies, it's their um responsibility to 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 punish him basically for for killing his mother but apollo said that he should have killed them that he had he had a responsibility to his father so when we open the play we're in delphi and he and we're in we open right in the temple of apollo there in delphi uh kind of an interesting scene you have you have orestes with his hands covered in blood and then you have the furies but they're asleep which is uh, kind of interesting way to open up and we come to find out that they have been uh, basically put to sleep by, by Apollo through through Orestes' prayers. And well, and to find out, we actually to start with, we, we're, the first person we are speaking is and see is um, is Pythia, who is the oracle there at Delphi. And so um, she's actually outside the temple, and then and then goes in, and then comes out, kind of letting it, telling us what's going on um, uh, inside. Um, uh, and then the, to- the temple, temple doors open and we're, we're see the inside with, with Apollo and Orestes and the Furies there. And then the ghost of Clytemnestra shows up. And so we have this, uh, this scene here where, where Apollo, Apollo sends Orestes with Hermes as his guide and protector to uh, Athena for Athena to adjudicate what's going on the goddess of wisdom. And so he had to do that. He has to go to Athens and, and the, and the Acropolis. When they leave, the ghost of Platos shows up, wakes up the Furies angrily and sends them after them. We then shift scenes to, to uh, Athens and the Acropolis. And they, uh, the three sisters um, make some claims against him there. And so Athena, um, ultimately um convenes decides to convene um kind of a council of the of the uh citizens of athens the kind of the leaders of athens um and interestingly she decides that she's going to use this opportunity to set up kind of teaching them to adjudicate issues there in athens and and um establishing kind of a rule of law almost for how these kind of cases should go on in the future um setting up Athens as a place of kind of our, our, you know, 
kind of our earliest look at what the uh, of, of, a, of a republic, right? Which we get fleshed out, obviously, by other writers with Plato and others. But she's establishing it here with these men in this case. And uh, the Furies have to make the accusation first. And their accusations that he deserves to be turned over to them because of for killing his his mother for matricide but he argues that uh apollo commanded him to do it and in this play we do get um by apollo's lips and by orestes this idea entering that it wasn't just uh orestes doing what he thought he should but that he was actually instructed by apollo to to avenge his father's death and so that's really the kind of the scene we're set up with and it, and, it, and it plays out they, they make their arguments and she uh, and then Athena, interesting, before the votes are cast, says that her vote will only count if it's if there's a tie, but that she she sides with Orestes. And lo and behold, it's a tie. So um, that establishes this kind of at least in this ruling. And we can discuss this as we as we get into play. Is this does this establish a kind of hierarchy of of uh of laws of order of laws of order of piety or is this a single case being adjudicated based on its own its own particular merits so uh i don't know i'll, I'll i think the most the rest of this we should really discuss more than get into the nitty-gritty in a summary so yeah and this is um this is such an interesting <clears throat> culmination to the trilogy because we've you know everything so far has been built on an injustice of some type right um and perceived injustice or um, delayed justice, you know, which is its own kind of injustice, like the the sacrifice of Iphigenia um, and Clytemnestra having to sort of um, live with her sorrow over that, you know, and Agamemnon never answering for it. Um, and then, of course, I mean, you can even include Cassandra being taken from her homeland as, as a captive. Um, and the whole curse of the house of Atreus and the anger of Thyestes and how that was handed down to Aegisthus. And then you've got Electra who is wronged and mourning for her father and Orestes comes back and his throne's been taken and his father's been taken. So like everything up to this point in, in the trilogy has been nothing but just injustice after injustice after injustice. And so it's, to me, it's really, uh, such a such a powerful culmination of the whole story that here we are finally they're they're driven to not just the temple of Apollo but they're driven to Athena they're driven to wisdom and we've talked a little bit about the whole curse on the house of Atreus and so it's I think it's a very very powerful image that we should get that you know, the only the only way for any of that to really break was not necessarily through just more bloodshed it was finally that they had to be thrown at the whole house of atreus had to be thrown at the feet of wisdom right you know for this to finally break so it's just kind of a powerful the summary itself is is a powerful thing to consider going into this play i think hmm. the way you say that yeah that the, the whole house had to be thrown at the feet of justice or of wisdom in order for there to be justice yeah right yeah, this was my first read. So, Brian, this is not, you know, this is an old friend for you in some ways. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's fascinating. There, there's a lot of different, a lot of different details that that I 
wish we had time to to get to but but one thing that uh, one theme i mean we talked a bit about the the curse on the house mm-hmm. you know we contrasted agamemnon's homecoming with odysseus and you know, Clytemnestra mm-hmm. and agamemnon with penelope and odysseus of course but it dawned on me over this past week before coming to the third play that we haven't really talked about maybe one of the more obvious um motifs or patterns um in in this trilogy and that is one that we see um not just throughout literature which is definitely throughout literature but it's it's in at the heart of scripture too and that is the whole idea of the promised child who would come and break the curse um you know and that's really what orestes is and um, you know you see it in obviously it with christ himself um but even with um you know, with Moses, with Isaac, with King Arthur, even, you know, over and over again. Um, and so that's a, that's an interesting, interesting theme, I think that um, is, is definitely here too, you know, with the rest showing up and now finally um, that the, the son has come home and he's the one that has to take the household of Atreus, you know, to, he has to do the right thing. He has to actually follow the law of the gods um he's the only one as far as i can tell in his household that that has right mm-hmm. uh, atreus that iestes atreus um agamemnon clytemnestra and now uh, and now finally orestes is the only one it seems in, at least from my perspective who has really concerned himself with being obedient to not just what he wanted, not just what his desires were, what his rage demanded, um, but he actually was concerned to obey the law of the gods. And he's and because of that, he's the only one that could actually um, break the curse. So that's something that I think, um, particularly if we have teachers or homeschooling parents who are listening, I think that that's a that's a theme, that's an idea to really trace through and see like what are the similarities in all these stories because that image of the promised child is is just uh, a very powerful one in literature and i think we see it here too Hmm. well and it's interesting yeah so i noticed uh that scene one opens with apollo's priestess pythia giving a genealogy and even a what i like a locationology you know people and places and then um we get to scene six and Orestes is speaking with Athena and um, she says to him, tell me your country, family, and fortune, and they will defend your charge, then defend your charge, right? But he has to give answer to basically what scene one provided, you know, so he has to provide it. And then he acknowledges in scene six that he can't speak until he's been purified and that he has been purified, right? So that's part of the laws of the gods. And he's he knows them and he's followed them, even down to this little one, you know, to know I can't speak to you until I've been purified. Um, so that stood out to me uh, to speak of his character. Yeah, it almost reminds me of, of almost like a... Um, a pagan echo of Isaiah six there, you know, <laughs> mm. um, he has, he has to be purged before speaking. Um, yeah. 
This is in, in your translation. Again, I've got um, the Robert Fagel's, I'm just using the, the Penguin Classics version, but so, so Pythia, who's the priestess of Apollo, and I'm just throwing it, this out here. I don't know whether anyone is interested in this connection whatsoever, but I find it fascinating. Um, yeah. So, so since you guys turned it over to me, let this be a lesson to you. Um, but okay. <clears throat> no, there's a, there's a reference in, in Acts chapter 16, really mm-hmm. interesting scene that where um, Paul and uh, Silas are in Philippi, I believe it is. And there's this servant girl who follows them around. They go to this place of prayer and they meet this servant girl who's there. And it says in Acts 16, verse 16, that she had a spirit of divination and she follows them around. And, um, you know, she, it says that her owners made a lot of money uh, from her prophesying and because of the spirit of divination and all that. And she follows Paul and Silas around saying, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she keeps doing this day after day. And then, um, then Paul seems to get fed up with it. He gets upset and he turns around and he, he casts out the spirit of divination. He says, I command you to come out of her. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get thrown into prison. All that. But, um, but what's interesting to me is that um, when it says she had a spirit of divination, it literally says she had a Python spirit. It's the, the Greek term. It's the spirit of divination is Python spirit. So from best I can tell, this slave girl in Acts 16 was actually believed to be speaking under the authority of Apollo. Mm. So um, because the Python was like the, the guardian of the Oracle at Delphi, right? Um, okay. And so here she is. Um seen even then as speaking from the gods. And I always wondered why Paul got upset because she's going around saying they're servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Another interesting little detail there is that um, for any Greek scholars that we have listening, there's no definite article listed. So really she was saying they're proclaiming to you a way of salvation. Um, And so she wasn't really teaching the truth. She was probably more comparing, um, god with father zeus as she refers to him in the play anyway um but i thought that was an interesting detail that the the image of pythia or the python spirit and speaking for apollo mm-hmm. is is a much more common image we even find it in the new testament um, yeah. and so you know she's she's seen as a priestess as a representative a minister of the god um and so here you know, we have, um, again, this this sort of overlapping connection that I just, I thought was fascinating. I don't know that it has anything to do with the play whatsoever, but. Do you think or know it's if. It's still kind of a dominant image. Do you think you or know if, if um, Pythia here then is not really so much a name as a title? The Oracle's name is Pythia. Is that like a title? Yeah, I think, it, the... I think it was, yeah, more of an office. Um, okay. And. You know, sort of like, um, I, I guess, you know, different people would occupy the position of high priest or. Uh, right. You know, so I think it's more a priestess of Apollo than it is a, a character's individual name. That that would certainly make sense if you see this name showing up across stories 
in as 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 yeah. being the the oracle at Delphi is named Pythia, but it would be whoever succeeds that person succeeds that person would become right. the Pyth- the Pythia. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's kind of what they were the what Luke was getting at in Acts sixteen by referring to that, that spirit of divination was she was mm-hmm. the Pythia at that time. Okay, interesting. Really in Ooh. that place, yeah, 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 in that in that area. Um, yeah, I, Andrea, were you talking when you talk about the the hands being clean? You were looking around. You're in around like the four hundred, so like four oh five, four ten, oh, or four forty five, maybe. Uh, I'll be there. Um, I just I had a note because I think Brian, you you talked about how he's he's not just acting out of his own volition, like he, he sets things right uh, or brings justice or ends the cycle because he's doing what Apollo told him to do. And I found that as it, this is an interesting contrast that my note was that his hands are washed, but his mother's are not because in the previous play, she couldn't, she was sending libation other people to bring things. Mm-hmm. She couldn't get her hand. And there's that, there was that, uh, I'm trying to remember if it was in the first or second play talking about, there's like like basically not enough water in the oceans to to wash the blood off of Clytemistra's hands, um, and I think it's one. Of, and so he's this this juxtaposition that he answers or he gives to Athena after um, after the chorus, which is well the the Furies have um, have have stated their case against him, or at least begun their case against him, and. Uh, yeah, I, I will give you a strong proof that what I say is true. It is a law that the man of the bloody hand must speak no word until by action of one who can cleanse. Blood for a young victim has washed his blood away. Long since at the homes of others, I have been absolved thus, both by running waters and by victims slain. And so, um, yeah, I mean, and again, that's obviously that's a that's a that that washing of waters is not only in the pagan understanding, right? There's there's that's the understanding of ancient Israelites and of the church that this running waters, right? So baptism was primarily historically done in living waters and water and moving waters. Um, but it was just interesting to me that that juxtaposition after she was, she was accused of not, of not being able to wash her hands. There was no way for her to wash her hands. That's again, another Shakespearean echo too, right? Out damn yeah. Scott. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but you know, I think it's important too to to see this as I mean, this is Orestes responding to Athena and saying, "I'm I'm not guilty." Yeah. You know, I mean, he he says at least in my uh, translation, four fifty eight or so that same passage. Mm-hmm. I haven't come for I haven't come for purging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In other words, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm here to mm-hmm. plead my case. I'm here, you know, for the protection of Apollo, but he says, um, I haven't come for purging. Look, not a stain on the hands that touch your idol. Mm-hmm. And so it was both, he's assuring her that his hands are not going to pollute her. Uh, um, yeah. So, I mean, he says threat of pollution, sweep it from your mind, but he's also telling her that he's, he's not guilty because it's a, um, just a few um, stanzas, I guess you could say later. Um, when he then argues, he says, and Apollo shared the guilt. He yeah. spurred me on. He warned of the pains I'd feel unless I acted, brought the guilty down. Um, 
but were we just or not? Judge us now. My fate is in your hands. Stand or fall, I shall accept your verdict. So Orestes has you know, great boldness here before Athena. Um, right. He's, he's not just claiming um, not guilty. He seems to almost be claiming innocence. It's like, no, I, I did nothing but what I was supposed to do. Right. It seems calm. You know, for him to close that with whatever you, whatever way you deal with me, I shall assent to your decision. He doesn't plead. He's not begging. Um, there, there's a, a peace about it. And I find that kind of remarkable. I don't, I don't imagine it would be easy. I can't, I, as soon as I say it out loud, like, I just have to stop. How do you kill your mother? Like, I just, right. but somehow he has a peace. And he says it in you know the way I'm around 462 in mine. And when I eventually returned from exile, killed my mother, I do not deny it, to make her pay the price for killing my dear father. And Apollo shares responsibility, which is what you read, Brian, right? Like that that part, like yeah. he's not denying, he's taking ownership, he pulls in Apollo with him. Um you know, that he he would have lived with agonies had he not, is what Apollo had told him. So yeah, like that scene right there is quite remarkable. It is, yeah, and I mean to throw himself on her, her judgment, and you know under those circumstances, um, I mean I can't. It, it would be it'd be hard enough to stand before you know a human jury. I mean here, you know if you were if you were standing before the gods, um, because let's face it, it's not, you know, it's not beyond. Um, the imagination, if you know much about the Greek gods and all the different legends and myths surrounding them, that um, I, I wouldn't necessarily feel safe that there'd be any consistency in their decisions, you know, or fairness in their decisions whatsoever. But um, he is—he is very confident, which I think, kind of, in my mind at least, sort of, is an indication of just how strong that whole promised child. Um, hmm image is or that that picture is in this that there's almost a sense where Orestes understands on some level that it ha it has to all end here you know it has to all end eventually and so he he very calmly you're right uh, lays himself at the verdict of Athena and then of course it's after that that this is interesting and I, I don't know if you guys have any thought on this but I, I can't necessarily figured out myself but um she says right after that too large a matter some may think for mortal men to judge but by all rights not even i should decide a case of murder murder wets the passions above all the rights have tamed your will your wildness a suppliant cleansed you bring my house no harm if you are innocent i'll adopt you for my city so it's strange to me that the goddess of wisdom says no this is even too big for me so i'm going to give it to men to decide that's um yeah it seems to be very strange did you guys oh i caught that yeah I mean, on that? <laughs> with you sharing a moment ago i was going to jump up so right before he says whatever way you deal with me i assent to your decision he asks her a question he says now it's time for you to pass your judgment was it with injustice or with justice that i struck right so that's the question of this play and he gives it to athena to answer and you're I'm marveling that she says, men can't make this decision. I can't even do it. And so it's going to be men and me. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it's not as if Athena has been unwilling to go against other gods or goddesses before. Right. Right. I mean, we see that in both of the works of Homer. I mean, they the gods have always been willing to take sides at times. Um, but here, this is um, this is too large a matter, she says. Um, You're bound to stir such anger, the decision on this one. Yeah. And I get, well, maybe it, maybe it is because she's been appealed to as a kind of um, intermediary here where you have the Furies on one side, you have Apollo on the other. And Athena doesn't really have a side that she wants to take. Whereas previously, you know, in the epics, we we see uh, maybe different reasons for that or different loyalties already, but that's not necessarily the case here. So um, this is in her mind, I guess, um, she's hearing a case more impartially, perhaps. Um, so I, I don't, I'm not sure that's just sort of a potentiality, I guess. Okay, so I don't have an answer for that, but the here's something that shifts. So when she gets done saying, okay, we're going to assemble uh, a board of jurors. They're going to be bound by a solemn oath who shall be judges in this case of homicide. And then she says, you therefore assemble your witnesses and evidence supportive of your case. Meanwhile, I'll select the finest of my citizens and gather them to pass conviction. Conclusive judgment here. Wrong word. So uh, then it goes to a choral song. The chorus is singing. My understanding is in this play, the chorus is different than it's been. And the first two, am I right? This one, it's for me, at the, it says that the chorus is the chorus now of the Irinuis or the Furies. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the first two plays, they've not had an active vocal word. They've more like haunted people. Um, but now they play the role of the chorus, which in the past, the chorus is typically the elders of a community. Yeah, it's it's interesting that the Furies kind of speak. Um, it's it's essentially a trial now. Yeah, you know where you have um, they're they're the prosecutor. Yeah. Um, well, and it, and these elders never speak, and they only listen. Even when they their ballots are just kind of counted in silence, it looks like, um, mm-hmm. which is more like a trial, right? Like the jury doesn't ever actually speak or ask questions; they just pass judgment. At least the trials we're used to. Yeah. So, I mean, if Athena says, you know, she hears, she hears Orestes and then she turns to the Furies and says, but they have their destiny too, hard to dismiss. And if they fail to win their day in court, how it will spread the venom of their pride, plague, everlasting blights, our land, our right. future. You know, so, so I, I think Athena, it, it's odd to us, but, um, you know, even the goddess of wisdom is looking at this situation and saying, hmm. she, and the way she ends it, so it stands a crisis either way. Expel the one, or I'm sorry, embrace the one, expel the other, it defeats me. So she she realizes even before they've both fully made their case, I guess, that this is, this is a dilemma. You know, and the furies have to be satisfied, but the law of Apollo has to be obeyed. Um, is that is that what wisdom is then to know um, it's not her place to come between these two like she can't do this alone 
to appease them, to, to have harmony on this land? I mean, my tendency, and, and this can be frustrating sometimes, I know, is that it immediately makes me go back and go, well, what is wisdom then? You know, um, then wisdom is, I've heard it defined this way. I, I think it's a good way of putting it is the ability to live life skillfully, right? You don't need a lot of wisdom in the clear black and white, right, wrong, true, false kinds of circumstances. Right. Um, you know, but true wisdom is needed when um, you have, have a genuine dilemma and you don't know what to do. Um, or, you know, to put it in more modern parlance, I guess, is that uh, wisdom is really needed in the gray areas far more than in the black and white. And if there ever was one in literature, this is definitely one, you know. Um, and I think as I think it, at least as far as you're talking about with the, the Greek tragedies, it's not only the gray, but it's the gray where there's um, where there's not a good choice, right? It's one thing if you're having to decide between like two good choices, which one do I, I can only do one of these two good things, which one's the better. But in this cycle, in the in the Oedipal cycle, you see these like impossible choices, right? There's something bad is going to happen. <laughs> um, the, the, you know, either for Orestes, either uh, his father's death is going to go un uh, unanswered. Uh, you know, uh, uh, a bad death is going to go unavenged, or or he's going to have to kill his mother. Like these are not good options. These are bad options. Um, and so it's this wisdom of doing what one ought when it's not a, there's not a good choice. I think yeah, I mentioned you even, you even have. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I think I mentioned it when we did the Oedipal cycle. I don't remember if I did Andrea or not, but there's this whole, um, it's not a ministry, but this whole deal that, that helps like uh, uh, returning soldiers. Uh, it's called theater of war. And they basically show them like old Greek plays and, the Homeric epics and other things like that. Uh, the guy's premise is that this is how they, the plays would have actually been used among this populace would have been helping prepare people who haven't been to war yet and, and helping heal those who have by showing them other times when there's like these I I impossible choices, like there are bad, nothing but bad choices in war. Right. Um, and so it's, it's a way to help people reckon with dealing with it. And so they've been using it to help people, you know, either overcome PTSD or avoid PTSD upon returning. And they've seen these huge successes with it, both first with soldiers. And then, then they've taken it into prisons and had the same thing, done the same kind of stuff with prisoners and seen that these like helps them to start talking about their own, their own stuff. And so, I don't know. It's just really interesting to me that that's the, the choices we get. And then in here, she puts it to the people. Uh, Athena does. And, that typically, I mean, yeah, and, and we, we mentioned that she was kind of setting up. Here's how we're going to adjudicate cases in Athens. This this is going to be our model case, to, you know, going forward and setting up this court going forward. And it's it's still true to this day, right? Like we don't go to we don't go to trial over t someone who had two good options and chose one of them. We go to trial over you know people who made a decision and whether they should be punished for something that that had a negative outcome. Um, you know, was it was it the best thing they could have done or not, or is it break the law or not? But it's never like about good choices that you're going to a trial over. That's a good point. It's interesting to me too that one of the things that drives Athena to include the whole jury in this um, 
to to involve the decisions of men, you know, the, the wisest of men in her city is that she's concerned about how this one decision, she's essentially concerned about precedent, right? Like what what is the effect that this is going to have? And she says that about both sides, essentially, is that both of them, you know, it, this is a crisis. And I love that she calls it that. Um, it's a crisis. So she's thinking through if, <laughs> excuse me, if the Furies um, fail to win their day in court, well, then what? You know, if if suddenly, if, if there's not vengeance, you know, it's kind of like she's turning the tables, right? Well, now you have a son who has killed his mother to avenge the death of, death of his father. But if the Furies law, if you will, just call it that, um, if, if their wrath on the murder on matricide is not upheld, then what? Right. Um, you know, that could be chaos. Um, mm-hmm. And then, but, but if the law of Apollo is not upheld, then what? Right. So there, it's interesting. There's so many layers to this as far as, you know, comparing it to the way that we do modern trials and the establishment of law even now is that yeah. there, it, there is a legitimate concern for if we make this decision, then what? You know, um, and that's something that even Athena herself is, seems to be really bothered by. I still circle back to then man gets brought into this and is trusted to help make this decision. <laughs> I guess that's why this is still considered a tragedy. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is what this gave us trial by jury. You know, now look yeah. where we are. Mm-hmm. Someone I've heard joking recently. I don't remember where I heard it, but, um, you know, that uh, you, you hope that you never get put on trial for anything because um, the cleverest of people are the ones who get out of jury duty. Um, you know, and so many people don't don't actually want to do it, which is a very, very sad state of affairs. But I think Athena would uh, would be really. Would be really embarrassed of what she's created here, if we want to give her the credit for that. <laughs> yeah, let's involve men in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, I, this leads me because I want to talk now about some of the specifics. Let's do it. Because what uh, what I find fascinating, like I think coming in, having not read it, but kind of having a vague idea of the storyline right. of these three plays, I assumed that the reason why it was uh, proper for him to to kill his mother to avenge his father was that he that death has to be avenged, right? Uh, And she was guilty of something. But what's interesting is that uh, eventually the argument shifts from being between Orestes and the chorus and being between Apollo and the chorus and the Furies. Mm -hmm. And basically, Apollo's ultimate trump card is, well, dads mean more than moms. (laughs) Dads what? Means mean more mean more than moms. Like mm-hmm. the mother is not the parent of the child. That's his argument. Yeah. And my and that like there and his argument for why there can be and there can be a father without a mother, 
case in point, Athena. Like that's his that's his yeah, right. that's his Trump, Trump card. Prior to that, he he uh I wrote I, I really noticed that he reduces himself to name calling. You loathsome god detested monsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> like he's losing here. Yeah. And and well, and they're like the old they're from the older guard of of god beings, it seems like then then they seem like from the Titans era or from the previous era of gods, the Furies. Um, because he talks she they call him young god and you know that they're making that they're not respecting their age and all these things. Right. And so there's this but they're despised by the current like by the current Olympian gods. Yeah. Um so much so that no one they didn't even recognize them because they don't like they don't really spend time with them. <laughs> um Athena didn't recognize who they were. Mm-hmm. Um and so yeah he gets into name calling and then he pulls this thing that's like, well, dad, you know, dad, dad is over mom. And it seems to work with his, the person he needs to sway the most, which is Athena. Um, right. Cause she ends up voting because of that, that way. Yeah. But um, yeah, this brings up really interesting questions. Of, like this really kind of muddies the water on whether this is just or not a little bit, like, you know, for, at least for an audience, uh, our modern audience that thinking about this. Yeah. I mean, and, but, of course, then and throughout um, throughout history, even even in in our current day, um, you know, the our lineage is typically traced through the line of the father. Um, you know, you look at genealogies in, in scripture and in other uh, other literature as well, and I, I think that's what he's appealing to. But you're right. I mean, it is kind of it might be shocking to modern ears, but um, and it was shocking to the Furies too, in fairness, um, because they were they were specifically charged with avenging the shedding of familial blood, right? So um, throughout uh, six ten, six eleven, um, right? You know where Orestes is actually charging back, you know, about the guilt of Clytemnestra, and he says. Um, she killed her husband, killed my father too. But then the Furies respond, well, but um, but the blood of the man she killed was not her own. Right. So um, right. yes, she killed her husband, but that wasn't it wasn't family blood. That's not our concern. No. <laughs> yeah. So, the Furies are only concerned with family blood. Right, right. And so this is uh, and and Orestes responds, and it's interesting. He says, And I, does mother's blood run in my veins? And the Furies are arguing how they say, how could she breed you in her body, murderer? So they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're throwing out names here too. It wasn't just Paula. Uh, okay, disclaim okay. your mother's blood. She gave you life. So they're both kind of going back and forth and you kind of get this. It, it really brings you back to Athena's words, right? This, this is a crisis because they're both, they're both making very good points here. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. Um, Orestes is essentially saying, you know, she killed her own husband, but you don't care about that. You know, she killed my father, but you don't care about that. Um, and then the Furies are going, yeah, but you killed your mother. And it's sort of everyone's pointing fingers every different way. And so it, it really does become kind of a mess. Um, but yeah, and, and it's not surprising. Um, maybe it should make us feel a little bit better. It shouldn't. But it should at least echo that uh, 
some things don't change that even, you know, Apollo and the Furies uh, sort of dissolve into name calling here. It's almost like a middle school logic class where you're, you know, trying to teach people how to argue well, um, but it's not going so well at this point. I don't, I'm trying to be conscious of, you know, at, at the end of all of that, he is acquitted and he goes home, but there's still two more scenes. And so now there's still the unraveling of this, right? There's still anger to be right. settled. And so the the Furies and Athena are now going to go back and forth, right? And so the Furies are threatening poison. Athena offers them a dwelling and offers them to stay as fellow settlers and tells them that none of their rights have been removed because they're saying, but hold on, we get to punish those who kill kin and you've removed that from us. And she says, I haven't removed any of your rights. I think that's an interesting, you know, no, you don't get this one, but I haven't removed your rights. So Athena tells them that the Furies, you know, the Irinuis, that they are wise um, and that she will be patient with them as they're deliberating here, you know, in scene eight, what to do. But it's yeah, like there's... And mm -hmm. Athena, it's interesting because she's trying to get them to see that what they were, it's not injustice if there was a genuine crisis, right? It's not injustice if there was a genuine dilemma. The real injustice in this would have been if Orestes was somehow um, deemed guilty for doing what he knew to do under the circumstances with the information he had, right? That's it's it's hard to imagine being in his position. Like what what should he have done? You know? And so for them, they they charge and they're, you know, when they're presenting their case, the Puries are arguing that you know, if you if you let him go, then there's going to be children murdering their parents all over the place is essentially the argument. You know, like this is going to open Pandora's box of just matricide and patricide. And, you know, family blood is just going to be um, meaningless. Um, and so it's kind of this like a slippery slope argument, you know, that if, if Orestes goes free, then there's going to be this this problem. But that's that's not really the case is it that I mean, he was not put in a situation to where he just woke up one day and decided i've had enough you know mom's i'm, I'm gonna kill mom um and so uh, athena has to sort of calm them and it's interesting in line 805 when the furies are, are very angry by the the verdict that's been given and it's finally athena and again remember goddess of wisdom says yield to me right this is so again we're back to here's this dilemma this crisis this no-win situation yield to me so she's a yield to wisdom no more heavy spirits you were not defeated the vote was tied a, ver a verdict fairly reached with no disgrace to you no zeus brought luminous proof before us um and so um I think it's interesting that ultimately the the entire trilogy, I feel like, comes back to that sort of um, watershed moment, that that kind of climax where you know, Athena says, yield to me. And I feel like if you were to sum up the whole trilogy, it'd be that line. Um, hmm. 
that the only thing that could solve this whole problem was wisdom. Yeah, it's so um, go ahead, Brandon. Well, yeah, because that's interesting because Apollo doesn't decide it, right? Athena does. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there seems to be this recognition, even by the Furies, of her as wisdom and her as the, the, the proper god to adjudicate this as the goddess of wisdom. Because, um, I mean, f- technically speaking, she and Apollo are kind of on the same level, right? I mean, they're not, they're, they're, they have similar, yeah, they're a similar status of gods, right? So there has to be some reason why he can't just tell the, the Furies to take a hike and they're not allowed to take, take her Estes. Well, and it also sounds like what she's saying here is we have to take into consideration the circumstances. It's not just a black and white. He did this. You know, he was involved in the murder of a kin. Um, it was within all of these other circumstances that this happened. And we can't just look at the action apart from the circumstance. That takes wisdom. If all mm-hmm. I did was look at the action and declare um, the judgment, you know, right, wrong, uh, that doesn't take wisdom. Hmm. Well, and the Furies are, they're really only satisfied by being given, you know, offerings and gifts. And essentially, you know, as a, as a lot of, a few writers at least have put it, that really what Athena does for them is she takes them from being the Furies, which are, essentially these goddesses who are always after, you know, avenging bloodshed. And she, she sort of transforms them into the graces. Um, and so, you know, they are, they are also changed. So in, in a way, I don't know if this is fair, you know, for the whole existence of the Furies to explain it this way, but it's almost like there's just curses broken everywhere at the end of the play. Mm-hmm. And it takes um, unraveling, um, but uh, just as Orestes is declared innocent and allowed to go free, so mm-hmm. the Furies are now free from their fury, I guess. <laughs> so did I read that right? If you go to nine, um, lines 956 to 66, um, I'm getting there. Athena, nope, 950. Oh, the chorus. So it's them. They're speaking. Um, they, I feel like they declare a blessing, which is coming from the Furies, the Irinuis. Like that seems a little odd. I prohibit untimely death, mischance that lays men low. May all lovely women, young women, claim a husband and a home. This I call for you, Morai. I don't know how you pronounce that, Mor- Morai, Morai, which is the fates. My mother's sister's powers, God to allocate what's right. You share in every house, charged with influence for all time, most honored in all ways. So once they accept they're going to stay here in this dwelling place with Athena on this land, it's like they declare a blessing on it and the people. That's quite a shift. And I had not connected that, uh, Brian, to what you just did, like the numerous breaking of curses. Yeah. What? How does yours portray that? Is that... This what I was I was trying to find the exact line here. Um, okay. 
So I'm not sure yet. Athena responds, I'm delighted how they offer. Yeah. So her response is, I'm delighted how they offer kindly goodwill to my country. And I'm glad persuasion, with a capital P, looked with favor on my language as I coaxed them from their harsh refusals. Zeus, the god of civic meeting, won the day. So now we are rivals and are giving out of blessings. Right? So we've gone yeah. from rivals to 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 wow gosh how did they phrase it um they were gonna um harry we harry mother killers from their homes right that's what mine used to harry to persistently carry out attacks on yeah. to now blessing and athena and the furies are rivaling in how many blessings they can pour out quite a shift so Shortly afterwards, the Furies even, how strange it is to hear them, you know, I think there's two, uh, two or three consecutive uh, stanzas from them where they, they cry out rejoice. Yeah. Rejoice, rejoice in destined wealth, rejoice Athena's people. Um, and so there's just this exchanging of blessing. It's, it's just odd to, to read of the Furies you know, uh, exclaiming, you know, rejoice, give joy. And, um, but is that what's capable when justice has been served, when, when justice is present, when wisdom has been heeded? Is that what's capable? Rejoicing, even from ones who saw their role as to harry mother killers or, you know, kin killers. That kind of a shift can happen. And there's uh -huh. speaking of things coming full circle. I mean, that's a that's a beautiful way to put that. And I, I think that that's what Aeschylus intends here. Um, this is Athena. The last words from Athena. Mm -hmm. um, she says, "My thanks, and I will speed your prayers, your blessings, lit by the torches, breaking into flame. I send you home, home to the core of earth, escorted by these friends who guard my idol, duty bound." Um, and then in the stage directions, it says Athena's entourage comes forward bearing crimson robes. You guys notice that? Yeah. This is. Is that so, goes back to the first play? I, I think so. I think so. Um, it says bright eye the, uh, of the land of Theseus come forth my splendid troop, girls and mothers, trains of aged women in graven movement dress our furies now in blood red robes. So it's. Uh, yeah. Um, that was the carpet that was rolled out. Is that color? Um, and there was a discussion um, of that. Yeah. In, in the first play. And so I guess here, you know, the furies are taking that away with them. Hmm. Right. So are there wrongs so wrong that they can be righted? Like, that's what this sounds like. I mean, this is multiple generations of just bloodshed staining the house of Atreus. Um, and really, I mean, in fairness, going back before, before Atreus, back to Tantalus. Um, and now, you know, the whole, the whole trilogy ends with the women of the city rejoicing and the blood red robes being carried away from the land. Um, yeah. All because of the promised child. Who did what looked more than impossible. Right. Well, and I know that there have been a lot of discussions about this, and I've, I've brought it up in all kinds of problematic conference talks and things about you know, the, the echoes of the gospel in 
pagan writings. I don't pretend to always have an answer other than the fact that it's God's story. And so it's woven into the creation itself and people can't help but contemplate it and come back to it. It is, it's the story, right? And so, I mean, there are pagan writers that have written gospel stories without even realizing they were doing so perhaps or possibly. Um, and here, you know, we basically have like, how do you satisfy justice and wrath? How do you, you know, how do, how do uh, righteousness and peace kiss? You know, how, how does the, how is the law of God satisfied? And yet the, the wrath of the gods satisfied at the same time, you know, um, and that's what the, the whole trilogy is about. You know, how do you bring peace, blessing um, out of death and betrayal? And yet that's that's where we are at the end of the trilogy. And it's really because of true justice and true wisdom. When they prevailed, here we are. So, And so if you go to the fairy tales, that's where um, Cinderella's stepsisters lose their eyesight because they weren't able to see her right for who she was um and yet cinderella still brings them to her wedding so there's it, there wasn't a, a death they didn't have to die for their injustice but there's a consequence um and there there is a bringing in so the furies want their consequence and it's not to go against orestes the consequence the consequence needed to go against clytemnestra orestes took care of that and then the the furies are brought in yeah yeah, I mean, there's so, there's so many, at least echoes and parallels, and then reversals too, right? I mean, but uh, when it ta- when uh, I'm trying, I was trying to find the spot. There's one part where the fears are talking about their their right to do what they do. Um, uh, yeah, it's in the early, early 300s, like around 310, 315, somewhere in there. Uh, Come then we link our choral ours to show forth the power and terror of our music, declare our rights of office, how we conspire to steer men's lives. We hold we are straight and just. If a man can spread his hands and show they are clean, no wrath of ours shall lurk for him. Unscathed he walks through his lifetime. Um, you know, there's this I I couldn't help but thinking like of what's go, what's go, for us what's going to come, right? The four horsemen, they're gonna they're gonna do what they do. They're they're gonna be unleashed. There is a proper um kind of there's a properness to what the furies are trying to do right they're not um they're not without just cause let's say um and so it's it's then they'll be there and there's a time and a place where those things will be or are or have been um released to do their thing to to take their toll um you know and uh, listen this is not the show to start interpreting revelations on but 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 there's something of that that's coming we've got, you know like, I mean? we've got a few minutes yeah 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 let me just break down the <laughs> toughest book in the bible um but it's there right I and mean, even when we were talking about the the father's the parent and not the mother and he like mm-hmm. he points to athena being born without a mother mm-hmm. obviously we get a reversal of that right in the christ story we have a we have a a virgin birth right um mm-hmm. but in that case 
the mother can be clearly known. And what's, you know, the irony is the mother is the one that's even all throughout history. That's the one you, you could definitely be sure was the parent. That's why you had to give the kid the last name of the father. So that like they had a, they knew that they could claim the fatherhood. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's just interesting. It's, you know, I don't know for us. I think it's Christian classical culture because it's impossible to get away from these echoes. It is. And I think in, in case we've, unless we leave everybody in kind of limbo going, wait, what, what were <laughs> they meaning by all this? Um, so I, I think the most important thing you can do in, in when you see these kinds of similarities and this, this beautiful overlap, the first thing is to one, admit it, enjoy it, compare it. But then in comparison, you really have to pay attention to the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so um, this is uh, in, in the Bacchae, which is another wonderful, uh, more Greek plays that, you know, maybe should be on other episodes. I don't know. <laughs> but, okay. um, when uh, Dionysius, um, there's so many um, parallels, echoes, even almost word for word, it seems like quotations from the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really kind of troubling but you go, wait a minute, what? Um, yeah. Um, and I, I did some, some talks on, on those plays too, but what I want to drive home is that you have to really pay attention to the difference, right? And that in those plays, for example, Dionysius was a God come to earth to avenge, um, the, uh, his followers and, and to avenge the fact that his mother had been dishonored, but that's a whole different story. Um, but one of the things that, that he says, and the real distinction is that he, he says that it is not right that a God would bear punishment for man. And so that's one of the distinctions, even though there's so many parallels and overlaps that you see between the gospels and those plays, you have to really look and say, okay, but where do they, they differ? And the same is true here, right? Is that, um, with Orestes, you have a mortal man, and he's only mortal, right? who is put in a situation to where he simply has to throw himself the mercy of the gods, um, the mercy of Athena, the wisdom of Athena, in the hopes that he will be found innocent, you know, or not guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, even though you have this promised child image. We have to be careful that when we follow through, we go, okay, but he, he was not the promised child, right? It's, it's an image that we find in stories and that's, it's very interesting. It's very entertaining, makes for great conversation and great study of literature. And it's the kind of thing that you need to be able to notice. Um, But as Christians, we always have to come back and go, okay, but it only goes so far. Here's here's where it's missing, um, and here's where, um, you know, ultimately, thank, you know, thank the Lord, you know, that Christ came because everything that was lacking in Orestes, everything that was lacking in Athena, everything that was lacking in Apollo and the Furies, um, is is um, in Christ, right? You know, the genuine. Um, righteousness, peace, wisdom, redemption, forgiveness, 
resolution, all, all of it is, is found in him. Um, but we just kind of have like a, a hint in these Greek plays of um, at least a longing for it. You know, so it really shouldn't surprise us when you read through a lot of the, the Greek uh, classics that there, it seems to be a world that was longing for the gospel. Was long, longing for truth, um, and we see that really throughout a, a lot of the stories. And it shouldn't surprise us when we read in church history how quickly Christianity spread in this world. It was as if God was, you know, raising up all of these writers to prepare them uh, hmm. for it in many in many ways. You have read more here than I have, by by many, and so when you say that, I'm 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 wondering. And I can see the longing for the gospel in the plays and, and the, the longing for truth. And so this one, it's um, captured in a longing for justice. Are there different plays that are longing for uh, faith, hope, love, justice, prudence, um, temperance, hmm. fortitude? Is is that seen? I think you're going above my pay grade here, Andrea. Oh, um, I don't man. know. <laughs> um, I, I think I don't know if I could if I could um, categorize it in that way, but yeah. I think if you if you look back through the the Greek writings that have endured, yeah, um, a lot of them bear out that that kind of focused uh, desire. You know, like uh, the, even Plato's Republic um, mm -hmm. is longing for the heavenly city. You know, yeah. um, the yeah. perfect city. And um, even though we don't have time for it now, I, I think that a case could be made that that Plato was even um, seems to be aware on some level of um, either either Genesis or, you know, parts of the scripture that would um indicate that you know there was that longing in man and and the plan of god to to bring about a perfect city where all of the um, the wickedness and the um failings that he describes in all the other cities that are proposed by in his conversations and dialogues in the republic um mm -hmm. they can't be met here on earth it's just a prayer he says um, but he offers up a vision of that that shows a longing in him for something that he knew man couldn't do himself. Um, All right. Well, so I'm um, above I, the pay grade. So let's just stay up there um, and toss okay. another question at you. <laughs> uh, Eros. So I read about Eros and Hicks, David Hicks is Norman's nobility. And he speaks in there about this longing. And if I'm understanding it correctly, Eros in a contemporary term is often thought of as a physical love. But if we go back to this time, Eros wasn't in that way. It was thought of as a, a, a longing um, for, I want to say home, wholeness, and they didn't know what it was yet. But I'm going to say at this point, it's the, it's the longing for the gospel for, for God. Yeah. And I, I think I think that there's a, another sense of that too. This it's one reason why in the Greek stories, and it's not just the Greeks. We've been we've just been talking about Greek plays, but it goes well beyond 
um, some of the greatest stories that have been written and told are homecoming stories, right? right. Obviously, we think of the Odyssey, yeah. Um, but um, you know, and, and um, you know, I guess you can argue the Iliad in a way. Um, that longing for home and glory, which are kind of intermingled in those epics, but mm. um, I think the the longing for um, a place that um, we haven't had here, um, right. you know, and we and that continues on. I mean, I think that you see, I think Hicks is right, um, which is typically going to be my response, um, but if. <laughs> Um, and I think that's a good rule of thumb, but the, um, that longing for home, the longing for something that we haven't really experienced here is, Mm -hmm. is always there and that's nothing new. And it's, but it's still something that goes on to this day, right? Everyone talks about community and place and belonging Mm -hmm. and all this. And we use all those kind of buzzwords, um, but typically what we find out when you go searching after community and place and belonging and roots and all that is that you find that it's hard. It's really hard. Um, yeah. And, you know, as, uh, as I've pointed out before, you know, everyone wants Mayberry, but nobody wants Barney. Um, you know, and we're normally Barney. So it's like our own sins, our flaws and the flaws of other people and sins of other people. Um, it always kind of keeps us longing for something else that's, that's beyond our grasp. Um, and that longing is not just for place at home. It's for justice. It's for peace. It's for, for forgiveness, um, yeah. reconciliation, um, okay. wisdom, prudence, you know, all of it. It's um, there's that constant longing for it. And, um, and I think that this is one reason why it is very important for us to, uh, to come back to books like this, to come back to stories like this, where we see that and it should help fuel that in us, right? To get us to look um, to the one place where we can find all that. Um, but, um, but yeah, there are echoes of this sort of thing um, throughout um, all of the all of the classic literature. There's a reason they stand the test of time, right? Because when you really get to the bottom of it, this is just expressing the same kind of longing that we all still have now. You know? mm-hmm. um, and I think that's probably the most powerful part of all these these old stories. Yeah, which is what Hicks speaks to: mythos and eros. Yeah. Yeah. The, the 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 longing is captured in the myth. Um, and realized um and it really this this story can end well it can end with blessing with a rival blessers um that's pretty incredible yeah it's uh, you know the first play starts out darkness and gloom you know the night watchman middle of the night second play same thing dark and gloom graveside it's you know more death Mm -hmm. than um the third play begins and kind of gives us such a different foreshadowing of what's coming. Now you're at the gates of the temple, you know, um, and yeah, you know, as, as the third play opens, um, you get sort of a very different, a different feel. And as it closes, it's, you know, who would have thought from where we started that 
it would be a scene of rejoicing. The crimson yeah, so robes a, being taken away. Yeah, it's not a wedding, right? It's not that kind of a comedy wedding. It doesn't end like that, but this is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it, not officially a wedding, but you know, the the last words, cry, cry, and triumph, carry on the carry on the dancing, on and on. Um, mm. You know, so it's not as clear cut as Shakespeare. You know, you spot the tragedies by you know, dead bodies all over the stage, and you <laughs> spot the comedies by a wedding, but it was pretty close. Okay, yeah, I mean, it, my last two lines are it's raise the, the triumph, family. cry, praise and harmony. That's what my last two lines are. Assure it in peace. I just, yeah, okay. Oh, that's even better. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah raise oh, the triumph wow. cry, repeats. Raise the triumph cry, praise and harmony. Oh. Now, hang on. Wait, wait, wait. Let me I have to back up a couple lines because there, there actually is a kind of wedding going on here. Uh-oh. We missed, I missed um, it. Well, no, I missed it. It's, it was right in front of me. Uh, says this peace between Athena's people and their guests must never end all seeing Zeus and fate embrace mm -hmm. down. They come to urge our union on cry, cry and triumph carrying, carry on the dancing on and on. Yeah. So I think there is a kind of wedding yeah. that's taking place here. So, okay. I take it back. You can edit out what I just said. It's sure sounds like <laughs> a wedding. It's okay. just not the it's not the love story wedding, right? Of a of a romance novel. No. Um, but there is a union here yep. that we are rejoicing at. And I, I I just I think that's part of what we long for. And I, I think it's something that's needed and why lament is so uh necessary is um the 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 wrongs to be righted require facing them. And so Orestes had to face it to stop the curses within his family line and, and do what nobody wanted to do in some regard. Nobody wants to kill their mother. I can't, I can't buy into that, you know? So you heard it here, folks. That's the application is that eventually if you want to stop the family curse. Somebody's got to kill their mom. Mm, Words of wisdom from Andrea Lipinski. Mm. <laughs> it, to me it's not a, like it, it happened to be the mom in the story i don't right. if it's the mom or the dad whichever one right i mean she's the first murderous horrible woman in the in the line right it's a bunch of men up to that point yeah so, oh yeah. Oh yeah so they and they, well, they got, the, yeah. the story it, it has such a, a great ending but, you know, I would still have students that after we would read through these plays at the end, they're like, eh, I still don't feel bad for Agamemnon, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, he deserved it. So I, I kind of get that too. But what a what a, a tragic family line and curse from which to draw out such a, yeah. a powerful story. You know, yeah. It really is. And yeah. I think for me, that's what I'm more so focused on. I'm not bothered whether it's the mom or the dad. Like, what what Orestes had to do. I don't I don't know. Maybe I'm misseeing it. Um that Orestes would have been in just as much trouble if he had killed his dad. If if that's what that what if right if he killed that kin. He would well, have been he in just would as much be, trouble. yeah, because he's because he's connected to both of them by blood. So the Furies right. would be after him either way. 
either way. So to me, what I see when I see the story is I, and maybe I'm wrong, Brian and Brandon, and you can help heal me. Um, I see that he had to right the wrong. He had to, you know, obey the gods to right this wrong within the family um, to stop all the family curses from continuing on in his line. Right. Like I think it's not about gender at that point. Yeah. And it's not even about, yeah, it's not even about whether or not you sympathize with Agamemnon. Like if you'd like Agamemnon, mm-hmm. because Brian started off on the first play telling us that he doesn't like Agamemnon. Right. Mm-hmm. But, I stand but, by that. but what Clytemnestra <laughs> did isn't, isn't a justified killing, right? Like she doesn't put him on trial. She doesn't, right. he isn't, he isn't found guilty. She tricks him and kills him. Right. 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 And so, her acts is also unjust. And so he's got to come in and do something that's, and it's his is just because it's what the God tells him to do. And then he has to argue that case for everybody. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, every we have, single person in the house has been concerned about the personal satisfaction, yeah. you know, their personal vendetta up to this yeah. point until Orestes and then justice comes. Right. I think that's a good way. That's a good way to put it. Um, all right, we've been going, I think, for over an hour now. So um, yeah. clearly, we haven't felt like we had enough. We've gotten a chance to talk about enough things with all three plays. Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily, we have the Q&A episode. So our, our listeners can send in those questions for things that like, how come y'all didn't talk about this? Because it's a lot in these three plays. Um, yeah. And then I think we'll all come with some of our own questions like, hey, I didn't, I don't, I'm not satisfied with an answer to this. So we're looking forward to that next time. So we'll have that, that Q and a episode, uh, up to you guys next week. Um, and we'll do that one next week. And we'll, uh, if you've been following along, you know, you can post questions at Cersei circle or at circle.cersei.so. There's a, there's a, a page over there. That's just for uh, overview classics. And you can also send them to podcast at Cersei Institute.org. So if you're there listening at home, yes, Andrea. And I have one thing to add. If you're enjoying bantering with us in your head or with your laundry or while you're driving, yes. um, I would encourage you to consider joining an atrium course this year where you can read some more and continue conversations with people uh, as we are. Yeah, you get to do this for real instead of just listening to us do it. It's great. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah like Jonathan's is on great ideas and you get to pick which old books you want to read to think on old ideas. Um, uh, Heidi's is on three plays of Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream, yeah, uh, Henry the Fourth, and Romeo and Juliet. Um, and then if you like what I didn't even, yeah, here's the connection. Tanya is leading one reading through Norms and Nobility, so oh, you can go yeah. figure out more about Mythos and Eros when you get there with Hicks. Listen, that's a book you want to read where you can talk to other people for sure. It, that's, I mean, yeah, it's dancing, get you in the weeds. And I, and I took, I took part of the Plato one last year. It was a lot, so much fun to discuss those, uh, yeah. those, uh, dialogues month to month. So, uh, you can check all those out on the Cersei website, um, under training. The, the atrium is there. Um, a few of those are getting started this month, a few next month, but they're all recorded. So if you missed the first one, it's nobody do. You can catch up pretty easily. Um, I encourage everybody to check those out. All right. Well, thank you for both being here and thank all of you at home for pulling the book off the shelf and, and dusting it off and cracking it open with us again this week. Um, these are overdue classics, ones we were supposed to read and didn't for many of us, including those of us on the show very often. So uh, we're glad you're doing it with us. Join us next week where we'll have that Q&A episode. Um, and like I said, you can send those questions to the podcast at CerseiInstitute.org or go to the Cersei page on circle.so. 
and post them there. Hope you're enjoying it, and we hope you'll check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network.